In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Welcome to Money Tales. Cami here. Our guest today is a young adult who has already experienced some of life's highest highs and lowest lows. Amanda Copeland grew up in poverty, and rather than letting that hold her back, she brushed off all the excuses and found a way to do something about it. Along the way, she struggled with a serious eating disorder and other challenges that strengthened her drive to make a successful life for herself and to help others wade through their own dark waters. This is Sandy. Let me tell you more about Amanda Copeland. She is a mental health entrepreneur. In 2016, Amanda successfully sold a business in order to create Copeland Consulting, a nationwide concierge mental health treatment team service. Amanda is a speaker and a nationally sought-after consultant who specializes in creating unique treatment plans and recommendations for individuals struggling with psychological concerns, such as addictions, eating disorders, lack of motivation, and other issues impacting mental wellness. During our conversation, Amanda shares how she budgeted the small amounts of money she had in college. This inspired today's financial insight at the end of this podcast, where we discuss how budgeting is a valuable tool for taking control of your personal finances. But first, here's our conversation with Amanda. Amanda Copeland, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad that you're here with us. I am super jazzed to be here. Awesome. In order to get our listeners prepared for this conversation, could you please give us just a quick summary of your life focusing on two or three pivotal events that make you the person that you are today? There are a lot of pivotal events, I think, not only in my life, but in everyone's lives. And it's hard to narrow it down to two or three. But long story short, I grew up without money. My parents got divorced and my mom just really struggled. She was very much wrapped up in how money could help her maintain a certain image amongst her peers. And so no matter how much money she made, we always essentially struggled to eat. We struggled to keep lights on. We struggled to keep gas in the car. And uh, it created a lot of frustration in my life. And that was really the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey and the way I saw money as an opportunity. And from that point forward, it really helped me to be able to see the gaps in society and ways to monetize those. And so whether it was at school selling gum or whether it was taking my first job at Subway and selling the free sandwiches I got, I found ways to monetize the gaps at school with the kids there. And it helped me to be able to create larger visions when it came to being a mental health entrepreneur. So those were starting companies and growing up without money and watching the way my mom related to money were big pivotal events in my life. Can you tell us a little bit more about that with your mom with regards to your, her relationship with money and how that impacted you? 
Yeah. So my mom always had excuses about why something couldn't work for her. So I can't have this job because I'm too old or there's ageism or things like I have to have a big house in order to fit in and have people like me. So we would have bigger and bigger houses. I would joke with my sisters every year that it was spring moving instead of spring cleaning for us. And one time she came to me and she said, will you help me pay the bills? And she didn't say, can you? She said, will you? And there was something in me that knew I had the ability and the question was, would I? So at that point, I realized I could sit in anger when the lights were turned off and there was no food in the fridge or I could get up and dust off all the excuses and figure out a way to do something about it. And so I went around back when they had pay phones and there were coins that were left in them. And I collected enough coins and recycled cans to buy a Costco pack of gum. And I took it to school the next day and I started selling them for a dollar a piece. And then I flipped that profit and uh, reinvested and helped my mom keep the lights on and help my sisters be able to eat literally that night. And so I was constantly living in this anxiety of the gaslight going on and my mom sitting in excuses. And I promised myself I would never do that. And back when we were actually poor in a poor neighborhood, it was easier because everyone else around us was poor too. But it was really hard to be poor in a rich neighborhood because I felt like no one else could relate. And I felt always outside of everyone else. And it really helped me see how money functions in their lives and in their families. And reflecting back to when we were poor, how the lack of money really created a need for community for us and how we were able to bond with the neighbors and share resources beyond money, like babysitting or my mom spoke Spanish fluently. So she'd take people down to the welfare office with her and translate for them while they babysat or fed us. So I learned about resources beyond money that really brought people together and then how money functioned in people's lives after we were in a wealthy suburban neighborhood and the stark contrast to those things. So had your family's financial life shifted when you moved neighborhoods to a more affluent neighborhood? So my mom got a better paying job, but the overhead on the houses was always too big for her to actually make any kind of substantial difference in our quality of living. And so that was really difficult for me and not understanding why she would do that, why she'd want to live in a bigger house if we couldn't have food in the fridge or gas in a car. And I couldn't wrap my head around it. Did you talk about it? We did talk about it. And she would always make promises about the lifestyle that we would live and how we would get Abercrombie shirts like everybody else in school. And it was really difficult having to go to school and wearing my sister's hand-me-downs. So the first purchase I got was actually an Abercrombie shirt when I flipped enough gum. (laughs) And I decided I could wait for my mom or I could do things myself. And she's still in a bad financial situation today and still hasn't learned how to really live in her means. And as she nears retirement, I worry about what her life will look like. It's hard. Amanda, when you got into gum sales, approximately how old were you? Man, like eighth grade, seventh grade. So that's pretty young to have an adult, your mother, come to you and ask you if you would help financially with the family. Yeah. 
And I always, even today, I wonder why she asked me and not my sisters. I wonder what it is she saw in me where she asked me to do that. Because I've asked my sisters if she ever came to them, and they said no. Interesting. Tell us about how you moved forward in your life and started to gain independence from your family. What happened after high school? I went to college. I went to the University of Oregon, and it was a good experience for the most part. And I just always felt like I was ready to be a soaring eagle in the skies of young professionalism, and school was holding me back. So (laughs) I couldn't wait to be gone. And I knew since I was seven years old that I wanted to be a counselor. And I knew the path I had to take. And so while everybody else was trying to figure out what they wanted to be, I knew exactly what I was going to be. And and then later, at the end of undergrad, people were like, oh, okay, I, I want to have a private practice. And I had already had dreams of owning a clinic. The private practice was like small game for me. And so I said, I'm going to own a clinic one day. And everybody was like, wow, you know, like, are you sure you can do that? And it really made me think that the life that they were given and the opportunities they were given held them back from seeing bigger visions for themselves because they never had to struggle and they never had to see beyond what their circumstances were. And the gift of poverty is that I always had to see beyond the circumstance because I always had to anticipate what was next so I could help my mom get to the next place. That is powerful. In college, are you with your friends talking about financial resources, money, saving, spending? Is that coming up at that point in life? I think the narrative of every college student is poverty. And so no matter how much money they have, I was like, oh yeah, I'm so poor, blah, blah, blah. And it's cool to be poor in college. I would struggle between, am I eating ramen and peanut butter sandwiches all week or do I go to Starbucks with friends? And without money, you kind of are left out of a social life and your friends don't really like for you to bum things off of them all the time, even though sometimes they're willing to share. But I still did not have a change in my financial situation. My uncle stepped in to help pay for some of my living expenses at that point and gave me a food stipend of $100 a month for me to figure out how to budget and live on. And I don't know if you've ever lived on $25 a week to eat, but it's a challenge. I bet. Tell us how you did that, Amanda. Lots of ramen. (laughs) Lots of ramen. (laughs) Like, were you actually budgeting or was it more of mental accounting? How did you? I definitely had to budget. So I would take these envelopes and I would put in $25 a week. And if the envelope ran out, I knew I couldn't buy anything else until the next week. So I would take it to the store and I would take a calculator with me and add things up as I went along. Back then, ramen was 10 cents a piece. So I knew if I got a dollar's worth of ramen, that when things got really tough, that it would help me through that time. And I would also just like make up excuses to go to friends' houses around dinner time so I could eat with them. Sometimes it was skipping lunch because you knew it was either going to be lunch or dinner and figure out what you have to do. But when your resources are out, opportunities are out. So I wanted the opportunities to stretch beyond just a day or two. And my mom, it was feast or famine. So we would have a lot of food when money came in at the first of the month. And then as the month waned, everything was gone. And I saw the way my sisters and I, our mentality of like, we have to eat everything right now because you were worried about the other sisters eating the rest of the food that you couldn't have or that kind of thing. So I just kept my focus on 
where I was going instead of where I was and knowing that the one ticket out for me would be this education. And so I knew I could starve today if I could eat tomorrow. And tell us at that period of time, what was it like to be around other people your age or friends who had more resources than you? Difficult, incredibly difficult. And they struggled more than I did, which didn't make sense to me. They seemed to have every opportunity in the world, but they struggled harder than I did. They seemed more lost in the world. They were able to eat every day. They seemed more depressed than I was, just partying more than I was, taking things for granted. And it didn't make sense to me how someone could have such big opportunities in the world and still not be able to do anything or be able to use it as a launching pad for their future. And so it was a really confusing thing for me to really see that and be in spaces with people like that. Have you reconciled that looking back? I definitely have because I recognize that although the circumstances at that time were not ideal and I was resentful, they made me exactly who I am today. And I'm nothing but grateful for that. And I can say that as I have food in my fridge and you know I'm able to go to Starbucks every day if I wanted to. And I don't struggle with do I pay rent or do I go out with friends? And so being able to have security gives you time to have perspective. Can you tell us the most energizing moment of your adulthood? Oh, man. There's a lot of energizing moments. I recovered from an eating disorder. And so with my mom, part of the success narrative was not just about being young, but looking young and being thin and having that stereotype. And so I wanted to make it more than anything in the world. And that definitely played a role in it. And I think the thing that once I thought was going to save me started to kill me. And when I tried to recover from the eating disorder and I had this focus on food, nothing changed, just the symptoms changed. And then I made a choice to put down the eating disorder and put down recovery from an eating disorder and starting to live. And I literally had this flash that I could design my life forward, that I didn't have to fix everything that was broken in me and I could design my life forward. And so as I did that, I I actually ended up starting a clinic, a mental health urgent care clinic. That was my very first business. I started a private practice, which accidentally grew and I didn't advertise that. So I don't count that as growing a business and all the skill set. but all these parents found out that I had recovered from an eating disorder. And I started getting calls from desperate parents with horrific stories of their children who cut themselves and were struggling with eating disorders, had been to treatment multiple times by 10, 11, 12. And they heard from one of my clients that I had recovered and I had helped her and I couldn't turn them down. So that private practice accidentally grew. But the mental health urgent care clinic, I had a business partner and I learned a lot about business with her, from her, and why I chose a partner in that idea. And a big learning moment for me was that I chose her because I was afraid to fail on my own. And I felt like she knew more than I did. And I lost faith in myself because this was an unknown area. And so eventually I sold that clinic and I sold it to her. And I went on and I started Copeland Consulting, which is a national behavioral health concierge service. And I said to myself, I'm never giving away 1% of my business. And if I'm going to win, I'm going to win alone. And if I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail alone. But I need to know that I can do it. And five years later, 
that's over a million dollar business and we help so many families heal and above and beyond that I'm able to give back to the people and the places I came from and help them along too and know how to do it because I did it myself. You're living the dream, literally. I say that every day, every day. I go into these families and sometimes, you know, these dads that are like politicians or um, high, you know, high priced lawyers or CEOs, you know, I go into their house and I say, I'm living my best life. And they're like, how do you have that attitude all the time? That can't be real. <laughs> Come a long way. This is amazing, Amanda. Yeah. So tell us how money has played a role in your entrepreneurial efforts. It sounds like you knew very early on what you wanted to do. And you also knew the importance of having money to cover, at the very least, the key food and shelter resources that you needed. As far as my personal life, I uh, started reading books like Dave Ramsey so that I could really get a grip on having security for myself and not having that worry. And then I started this business and I put all of it on credit cards. I started the whole thing on credit cards. And you know, you're know, $70,000, $80,000 in credit card debt. You start hustling more than you've ever hustled in your life. And you don't have time to worry about anything. But how are you going to get your first client? So I then learned from the gum business how to create low overhead businesses. <laughs> It's amazing how all the different parts of our life come together and really help us out. Exactly. Later on. Yep. So I knew that if I operated out of people's homes, then I wouldn't have the overhead of a business or like of an office space. So I, I knew that money, if I could invest it in the right things like marketing or whatever, that my overhead would be low and flexible the whole time. Fortunately, after that first client, it paid off the debt and I was in the black and that was a huge relief. But I have vision boards and pictures of people that I've worked with in nonprofits back in internship days or people that I grew up with who didn't have money and didn't have opportunities. And I use that to drive me forward every single day. Um, and I'm on my way to establishing a foundation now so that I can help provide these services to people that can't afford them. But I recognize that money is not just an opportunity for security. It's an opportunity for thriving if you're able to provide it to somebody in the right framework with the right skills and the right support. Fantastic. Amanda, describe for us your current relationship with money. So I recently got into investing and I started getting anxious about money again. I started just getting on the roller coaster and like in quarantine, you don't have a whole lot to do. So it's like I had a friend who got into investing too and we ended up becoming day traders for a moment. And I was like, whoa, this has got to stop. This is getting crazy. So I put all that down for 30 days recently so that I could recalibrate my relationship with money. But I think that money is just paper unless it buys you opportunities. And I say that all the time. And I don't think that if I had a different outlook with money, my mental health would be the same. I think that if I saw money as more than just paper, I think I would be consistently anxious. And it takes a moment for you to acclimate to having money after a long time of not having money. And in communities like PPI or working with a lot of financial advisors or a lot of wealthy families, you start to see everybody else's money story and how it shaped their lives. And 
that's helped me a lot. That's the beauty of being a counselor. You can ask anyone questions, like any questions. It doesn't matter what they are. And people are like, oh, she's just a counselor. She'd be a podcaster. Exactly. <laughs> so as I listen to them talk about the impact of money on their lives or the wealth builders talk about coming from the same kind of background and how they see money today, it's been really interesting to integrate some of those lessons into my own life. And right now I'm 34. So, you know, I think, okay, maybe I have 50, 60 more years ahead of me. And what an amazing opportunity to learn that now instead of at 50 or 60, when a lot of people, it's too late to change their relationship with money or the amount of money they have and the joy that it could bring to their lives. And I'm just grateful that I'm able to let go of money more than anything, that I'm willing to let go of it and invest it in other people and see how it returns to me tenfold. Has money brought joy to your life? I would say the opportunities money brought and the opportunities to then sit with other people and educate them about money and talk to them about investing in themselves. And one of the things I say to people is if somebody offered you a million dollars for a hundred dollars, would you give up that hundred dollars if you knew you could get a million? And they're like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and people are averse to loss. And I know that as a counselor, we'd rather hang on to what we have than lose what we have and potentially get more. I wouldn't say money brings me joy. I would say my perspective on money brings me joy. That makes sense. What role do you think money has played in your adult life? A lot. I mean, I see the way money is a tool for investments. I see the way money is a tool in terms of being able to start the foundation and give back to people. I see how money is a tool for my dog when she's sick. I could take her and get her the care that she needs instead of struggling and wondering, can I take her to the vet or should I just let her wait it out because I can't afford it? I see how my other friends who are entrepreneurs are using money to better their lives. Amanda, a little while ago, you mentioned the acclimation of going from someone with no resources to someone who has perhaps even excess resources. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean? What, what was involved in, in that acclimation process? I think a lot of it is imposter syndrome. You start walking around people that have a lot of money. And you think, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. They're going to find out. They're going to realize who I am and know that I don't belong here. And you have to adjust your persona and your vision of yourself. I'm a very casual person. So like I joke with my friends that I have my speaking sweats. I have my going out sweats. I have my business sweats. <laughs> and so walking around, you wouldn't see, uh, you wouldn't think that person has this kind of money or that kind of money, but it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me because I've gotten comfortable with myself. And what I've realized is that we're all just people. At the end of the day, we all have the same dreams and the same visions, although granted they're at different scales, but we also all have the same imposter syndrome at whatever level we're at. And so I have been able to relate to people as just people, no matter how high in society they might be. And we've worked with senators and former presidents and their families. And so you would think like, oh man, I'm going to experience that imposter syndrome here. But I don't. I don't. I sit there on the couch with them and their families have problems just like my families. Their families struggle with addictions, with eating disorders, with mental health issues, just like one quarter of America. And when you start to see more similarities and differences, 
the imposter syndrome just stays. And what I've been able to focus on to acclimate myself is the similarities versus the differences. Do you bring this back to your sisters? Do you have these conversations now today that maybe you didn't have when you were younger? You know, it's so interesting because my twin is very entitled. I hope she doesn't hear this. Uh, (laughs) She's very entitled and horrible with money. She'll get a paycheck and be out buying a Louis Vuitton bag. I get my own paycheck that I've I've gotten more profit sharing for my own company and I'm putting it in investments. And so she'll say things to me like, oh, are you going to take me and Allison, my older sister, on a family vacation? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll go with you. But you're going to pay your part. And she's like, you, <laughs> she's like, you have your own company. But there's, there's an entitlement that she seems to have around money, which is really interesting to me. And then my older sister, she's in recovery from an alcohol addiction and gambling addiction. And she has a fear of money. She has a fear of holding money and afraid that she'll blow it. And when we were younger, she would go work at different summer camps around the country to experience different parts of the country and then blow her whole paycheck exploring that area. So I was the only one in our family that really got the concept of saving and what it could do for your life. And it's interesting how we all grew up in the same family and all function very differently around money. My older sister and I do have a lot more talks around money because she's more open to it. And we talk about the fear that she has around having it and how that results in the behavior of just burning through it so she doesn't hold that fear in her pocket. And so we've talked about how do you detach emotion from paper in the same way you detach emotion from food or emotion from alcohol and be able to use it for what it is. And what are some of those techniques? One of the things I say to her is money is just paper. It's an inanimate object. So money doesn't feel anything about you. You feel something about money. And so that's what you've got to look at. And why do you feel that about money? What in your mind, what in your experience has brought you to that point? And how can you start to model other people who have a better relationship with whatever it is you're looking for and start to model their thought patterns? and model their behaviors and their strategies. So for instance, if somebody who's successful with money isn't going out and gambling it, if they're putting it in investments, how can you do the same? And how can you not let your fear overrun your life? Because if it's happening in one area, it's happening in more than one area. So it's just working on your emotional regulation and your emotional management. Where is the future for you? Like with this business that you're building, what's your vision for it? I want to be like Tony Robbins. I want to be this amazing philanthropist, this amazing person that just invests fully into people's lives and helps change millions of lives. And I want to do that in big, big ways. And I think that if I can write a book or if I can do workshops or some kind of main stage thing like Tony, I think that would be amazing. But I think more than anything, I'm building my legacy. And that's when I recovered from my eating disorder. I wrote my own eulogy and I started to live it backwards. And that's been a really important thing for me. And I know that my journey won't stop with just this business that it will grow beyond. And I already have 50 people who work for me who live this mission wholeheartedly. And 
maybe it'll be a hundred, maybe it'll be a thousand people, or maybe I'll start to train other people to do the things that I do to help affect change in families. But I know that sometimes the visions we hold for ourselves go way beyond what we can imagine today. I love this concept of writing your own eulogy. How did you come up with that at the time? I had this like spiritual moment, I guess, one night, and I was deep, deep into my eating disorder. And I heard this voice that said, you're either going to kill yourself or decide to live. And it just took me back. So I said, okay, well, I don't think I actually want to die, but I don't know how to live. And I just like prayed that I would get an idea I had never gotten before. And I woke up the next day and I had this idea to look up things dying people regret. And um, I had never had that thought. So I looked up things dying people regret. I wrote them down, all the ones that stuck out to me. And then I created rules for living. Like I had rules for my eating disorder. I had rules for living. And when I would start to feel trepidatious, I would look at those rules because I knew I was on the border of who I wanted to be and who I was. And I would look at those rules and decide if I was living those rules, how would I act right now? And so after that, I wrote my eulogy based on those rules. And I said, that's what people are going to say about me when I die. And that's the legacy I'm going to start to create while I live. Would you be willing to share one of your roles? Yeah. So there's a lot of rules, but one of the ones that stuck out to me was, I wish I knew earlier that happiness was a choice. And so I wrote down happiness is a choice. And then right next to it, I wrote, how will you choose to feel right now? That's amazing. Amanda, about how old were you when you were really suffering from your eating disorder? It was an eight-year battle for me through college and grad school. And then a few years after grad school is when uh, I really had that epiphany and pivotal moment in my life. Did your own eating disorder propel your focus in a different direction then? Kind of. When I recovered, I wanted nothing to do with eating disorders because my life had revolved around it for so long that I was done. I didn't want to tell anybody about it when I moved to Texas. I didn't want to talk about it. I had ended up disclosing that to my business partner that I had struggled. And so she kept trying to give me this kid. And uh, it was a daughter of a mom that she was working with. And she kept saying, you know, she struggled with an eating disorder. And I think he'd be good for her. I said, I have a great referral for her. <laughs> I don't do that, but I have a great referral for her. And, and so she kept just every t- single time we met, she'd bring up this kid. And finally, I was like, look, I'll meet with her one time, one time. And I met this girl and she was in sweatpants and we were both twins and our birthdays were a day apart. And she was just very sassy. And I was like, I like this kid. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided that I would see her a couple more times. And uh, she told me she wasn't going to talk to me. So there was no point. And I said, great, since we're not talking, we should probably figure out something to do because we're together three times a week. So like, what are you into? And she's like, well, I like to color. I like American dolls. I like all this kind of stuff. And I said, I'm down with coloring. Let's, I'm going to get coloring stuff. Let's just color together. We're not going to talk. I don't even want to talk to you. So we're just, we're just going to color. So she's like, okay. And I was like, yeah, you just want your mom off your back. I want your mom off your back. So this is the way to do it. And she's like, okay, so we're coloring. And she's like, one time she said, it must not be very easy to recover from eating disorders because there are so many books about it. Something like that. I said, okay, tell me more. And she goes, well, people only write about things that are unusual. You don't hear books about people going to get the morning coffee 
and sitting and having a great family life and then working a job and going to sleep. She's like, there's no books about usual things. And I said, that's fair. Have you ever met someone who recovered from an eating disorder? And she goes, no. She goes, I've only met people that are sick. And I said, would it change things for you if you ever met somebody who just fully recovered? And she said, yeah, but it, you know, it must not be very possible. And so I said, would it change things for you if I told you that I was recovered? And she said that was the moment that changed her life. And I just thought this was just an A and B conversation, like in the quiet of my therapy office. And uh, next thing I knew, she had told the other girls at her treatment center and started calling them saying, you'll never believe I met someone who's recovered and she's a counselor. And so that's when the moms started calling me to work with their kids. And at that point, it was no longer my identity, but I felt it was my responsibility to step up and be a role model for them. And that was really what launched me into doing this kind of work. That's beautiful, Amanda. Thank you. Is it a burden or a blessing? I would definitely say a blessing. I would say that whether you're struggling with an eating disorder, addiction, depression, it's an absence of life. And so when you focus on an absence of life, you just get more absence of life. And so I help people build lives that are worth living and lives of meaning and purpose. I always say purpose, passion, and community are the three keys to living. And if I can infuse those in anyone's lives, they'll be just fine. And so that's what I do. And I tell them all the time, you've been to 13 treatment centers. You could talk circles around me in terms of theories, in terms of all these experts you've been to, but has anyone ever talked to you about living? And they say, no, every single time they say, no, everyone's just been focused on my eating disorder. And I say, that's the distraction. So yeah, I mean, it's been incredibly fulfilling. And I tell them if they want to stay sick, they have that right. No one can tell them how to live their life, but choose it and choose it consciously. Because if they choose it consciously, they know they could always choose something else later down the road. What is financial success to you? How do you define it? I think about this guy, Jeffrey Canada, and he went into an area of Harlem and he sectioned it off and he said, I'm going to change and transform this neighborhood. Each neighborhood has different problems and needs different solutions. And I think financial success looks like to me when I could transform neighborhoods one at a time and have the resources that money can buy and money can't buy to actually achieve that goal and change generations. Amanda, what's one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up in our conversation yet? I would say, don't go after money, go after values. And the the money will always come. If you go after values and pursue those things, which may not even be like your passion, but if you go after your values, then the money always comes and you'll find a way to fill the need that society has. Does talking about values come up a lot in the work that you do? Oh, all the time because values shape the course of our lives and our quality of lives. So if you get conscious about your values and when people don't know or they start writing down their values and it's not congruent with their actions, I say, these aren't your values. These are what you want your values to be. And so then we make a list of their values of the ones they actually want and the order in which they are lived in. So when you say order, is that the priority, the importance of the value to the person or just how they happen to play out in their life currently? The priority. So like, for instance, you can't say health is my number one value, but you're drinking every day. You're going after money at the cost of your sleep. 
you can't say that's the number one because if it was the number one, your health would come above all the other values that you have. I think for the most part that people live unconsciously. They just fall into patterns that they're not aware of and that don't benefit them or that they don't choose. And so when you get conscious, your whole life can change. Especially around money. Mm -hmm. Your relationship with money mirrors your relationship with food, people, substances, and a variety of different things. And we believe that. Anything else you want to add to that idea? It's right on. It's rich. It is. I mean, I could guarantee you, you show me someone who is binge eating. They're binging on people, on attention, on love. They're binging on money. And I mean, once you point out that pattern in their life, then they start to, you know, a light bulb moment happens and it's a pattern. It's a mental pattern that they play out with all these different things. Amanda, we'd love to ask our guests as we near the end, what's your next money conversation and who's it going to be with? It's probably going to be with my clients that I'm currently living with, talking about how she could get financial freedom beyond her parents, because freedom, she says, is her main value. But I think her definition of freedom is not really congruent with what she says she wants. So we're going to work on definitions as well. But um, she hates that her parents control her life through money. And so we're sitting and looking through jobs and what that looks like for her and how much money she would need to make in order to live the lifestyle that she'd want. Amanda, you're doing some powerful work. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking with us about your life and about your money tales. There's so much great stuff in there that we can all learn from. It was really fun. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Cammie here with a personal finance insight. During our conversation with Amanda Copeland, she discusses using envelopes as a budgeting tool during college. Today, we'll explore why budgeting matters. At Experian, when we begin working with a new client, we take them through a discovery process to identify their financial goals and dreams. The goals often reveal the purpose of the client's wealth and define the direction of their financial plan. What does this have to do with budgeting? Everything. Once we know the direction we want to go with our finances, a budget serves as an important tool to help guide our behavior to get us there. This is because the budget allows us to determine in advance and with intention how we plan to spend and save our money in a manner that will allow us to reach our financial goals over time. And by comparing our actual spending and savings to our budget on a regular and ongoing basis, we can make sure we're sticking to our financial plan. Let's talk through a quick example to highlight these concepts. Assume we have three priority goals for the year. They are to maximize our annual retirement plan contributions, to travel to a new exotic location each year, and to replace the entire living room furniture in our home in the year ahead. We'll prepare our budget for the year, probably using a free or paid for app, depending on our preference. Our first step is to project our income for the year and then focus on expenses. We recommend taking a layered approach to budgeting expenses to build in the intention I mentioned earlier. Start by factoring in non-discretionary expenses. These are items that we must spend money on to continue our lifestyle. Non-discretionary expenses include things like rent or mortgage, insurance, taxes, utilities, food, clothing, and transportation. Next, layer in costs related to our travel, furniture, and retirement savings goals. By budgeting expenses for our highest priority goals, we make sure we're proactively developing a plan to achieve them. Whatever projected income is left over, we can allocate to discretionary spending items like dining and entertainment, other travel, 
hobbies, and gifts. Budgeting for our goals before discretionary spending allows us to build trade-offs into the budget. We're basically telling ourselves that we're going to spend less on discretionary, lower priority items in order to fund what matters most to us. Sometimes the budget process leaves us shorthanded. If it doesn't look like there's going to be enough cash to cover all our needs and wants, give the budget process another go by reducing discretionary expenses or readjusting goals. Maybe we need to plan to spend less on or even skip the exotic vacation this year, or maybe we need to delay some or all of the furniture expenses until next year. If the budget is still tight, we'll need to cover our needs from selling assets on our balance sheet. Or if the situation is persistent, we may even need to revisit our non-discretionary expenses and make significant changes, like reducing our housing costs. Other times, the budget process leaves us with excess. This is a happy problem to have. Excess cash flow means we can decide if we want to add new spending or savings goals to our plan. Once our budget is in place, it's important to monitor our ongoing spending relative to the budget. Doing this monthly is a good routine to adopt because this gives us the opportunity throughout the year to course correct if unexpected expenses occur or we experience a hiccup in our cash flow. I'll conclude this discussion by sharing that for some people, the word budget feels too constraining. If you're in this camp, we recommend swapping out the B word with expense management or spending plan or some other word or phrase that gets to the essence of this process and enables you to feel empowered and in control. Because at the end of the day, that's the goal of budgeting. We hope you enjoyed today's financial insight. For more, you can listen to the end of other Money Tales podcasts or go to our blog Fathom at Asperient.com forward slash Fathom. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.